Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, October 4th, 2012. Okay, yes, yes. Yeah, you know, I get the feeling today's going to be a little bit of a teaching program in the sense that I'm going to spend a little more time than I usually do teaching, but I've got some important ground to cover. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of really crazy things being said out there in the name of God, and we tackle those things by stopping, slowing down, opening up our Bible, and seeing if what people are saying in the name of God truly is what God's Word says when we look at it in context uh, to see if what they're saying is the truth. Because remember, Jesus warns us uh, you know, throughout the Gospels. In fact, all four of the uh, Gospel writers uh, point out the fact that Jesus warned about false Christs, false prophets, false teachers who basically are wolves who masquerade in sheep's clothing. And the way you will know them is by their fruit, which means their teaching, what their teaching is. Because keep in mind, the sheep's clothing, while they'll don themselves in piety, they'll put on good works because, you know, they, they don't want to be fully detected for what they are. But you can always detect a false teacher by their handling or I should say mishandling of the biblical text. Now today what we're going to do, the fact that we're we're, going to need to get into it quick because um, like I said at the uh, very opening of the program, today's going to be a little bit more of a teaching program in that I'm going to be going after, um, well, some primary stuff that, uh, that is being kicked around out there by a lot of false teachers. For instance, have you ever heard somebody uh, you know, a pastor or a pastrix um, say, listen, the Bible says decree a thing and it will be established for you. See, so you need to decree a thing. You know, you got to speak things with your words in order to create your reality. Well, um, when they say something like that, you know, the Bible says you need to decree a thing. They're quoting a biblical text. But what we're going to do is we're going to listen to Patricia King teaching on this text and a few others, and we're going to blow the lid off of it in, in, the, in the sense that we're going to go to the biblical passage itself, 
take a look at what's being said and see if really the Bible teaches that you can create your reality with your words. Now, we're going to be doing this through Patricia King, not Joel Osteen, even though this is the primary verse that is really rattling behind uh, Joel Osteen's new book, uh, you know, Decree. And, uh, you know, the th- apparently you get up and you state these affirmations and things like that. Well, Patricia King believes the same false teaching that Joel Osteen teaches in that book. And it's based on a complete mangling and twisting and an ignoring of the context of Job chapter 22, verse 28. So, you know, the, the, so first thing out of the shoot, we're, we got a Patricia King update, and I'm going to spend some time in the biblical text demonstrating that the Bible in Job 22, 28 is not a promise that you need to decree a thing and it'll be established for you. <clears throat> in fact, um, when you understand the fuller context, you're going to go, oh, no, how any, how could anybody believe that this is what the Bible says? Because when you, all you got to do, look at that context, and the whole thing goes poof. And so uh, we're going to do that today. And then I, I've gonna, I can't remember if I've ever reviewed anything by Joyce Meyer on the program. You should probably go back into our database and type into our program archives, see if I've said – if I've even mentioned her for real – but uh, uh, Joyce Meyer is this. I've been getting a lot of requests lately to review things by her. And uh, I'm not going to do a full blown sermon review today, but uh, we're going to take a crack at uh, you know, listening to some of her teaching from a sermon that she uh, did not too long ago entitled Identity Theft. Identity Theft by Joyce Meyer. This was on her um, nationally or internationally televised. Uh, program and boy, I got to tell you, Joyce Meyer is one of the more dangerous false teachers out there. She is up there with like Joel Osteen, <clears throat> I would say Rick Warren, uh, Brian McLaren. I, I mean, she, uh, she is really at not not good. This this is a woman. Her theology is really, really, really bad. But here's the thing. She is great. She is a fantastic public speaker, and she speaks with passion and conviction, and she sounds like she's just giving you good old straight-talk Bible stuff. But her talk may be straight, but her Bible teaching is crooked. And so we're going to take a a, a first real crack at uh, doing a, a Joyce Meyer update. In fact, I've picked music uh, already for our Joyce Meyer updates because I think we're going to have to revisit her more often because of the requests that I've been getting regarding her. But trust me when I tell you, uh, listening to her program, uh, her theology is really, really narcissistic um, and uh, clearly in the Word of Faith camp. So, uh, And then in hour number two, we're going to be reviewing a sermon uh, from a, a church called Upper Room, uh, Upper Room Community. And um, the name of the uh, the sermon is called The Simple Command. And the reason I've chosen this one is because this sermon represents what I would consider the common, uh, most common mistake that Christians make regarding the gospel, okay? Um, in fact, those of you who are new to fighting for the faith, um, what I'm about to say to you may come as a surprise. It may be even startling. It might be, you might be thinking, no way, that can't be true, Okay, but listen to me when I tell you this. Love God and love neighbor is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. In fact, love God and love neighbor 
is the is the very succinct summary of the entire law. And that's not the thing that saves you. That's the very thing that condemns you. And so the reason I picked the sermon is, is because um, one of the most common ways in which uh, Christians um, <clears throat> mangle the, the the biblical distinction between the law and the gospel is by conf- is by really erroneously thinking that love God and love neighbor is a simple command, and that somehow that's a summary of the gospel, and it's not. It's it's the summary of the law, and that's the thing that damns you. Because listen, if I, we were to sit down and just take an inventory of your life since Monday, okay. If I were to sit down and say, all right, you know, let's say I had the ability magically or, you know, spiritually or supernaturally to go back and just, you know, let, just do a summary of your life since Monday. Okay. <laughs> Maybe even since this morning. And we were to see how your life measures up to the Ten Commandments. Okay. Um, you know, which, by the way, Christ says that the whole law is summed up in love God and love neighbor. So, um, you know, if we were to just take a look at how your life measures up to love God, love neighbor, and we would look at the sublines in that, you know, looking at the finer details of the Ten Commandments, you know what we'd find? We would find that you are not measuring up, like not even close. In fact, same thing with me. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. So if I were to tell you, listen, you just need to, you, you really, come on, it's simple. All you need to do is love God and love neighbor. You you know, after taking that inventory, you'd say, well, it's clear from what I've done and what I haven't done by the thoughts that I've thunk and the, and the deeds that I've committed and, and haven't committed that I have a love problem when it comes to God and neighbor. And I would say that's exactly right. That's why Christ died for you. So hour number two, it's not, it's, it's, this is one of the, uh, it's not one of these crazy, super uh, weird sermons. Um, it, I would just consider it, you know, a standard generic evangelical ish type sermon that is guilty of making them one of the most common. In fact, probably the most common mistake when it comes to properly understanding the proper distinction biblically between God's law in the gospel. So that's going to uh, comprise what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, if you have them, tinfoil pyramid hats, any devices that you use in order to protect yourself from some of the strange heretical teachings that come your way via Fighting for the Faith. Don't worry, we'll do our best to uh, <clears throat> to isolate them, identify them, and uh, neutralize them here as we go on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Here we go. So, um, do you believe that the Bible says that... Uh, that you can decree a thing? Have you ever wondered what happens when you make a decree? And is it really a biblical teaching that if you uh, you decree a thing that it will be established for you? Is that what God is teaching us? That somehow we need to speak words of faith that then fly out into the spirit world and then God uses that to create our future reality and stuff like that. Now you're thinking, boy, that sounds really familiar. Well, yeah, it is. This is a common heretical belief that is based upon a complete lack of understanding of what is going on in Job 
chapter 22. But in order to properly set this up, I think it best if we let Patricia King uh, spin some of this out. This is from a recent video of hers entitled, What Happens When We Decree? Here we go. For Ask Patricia today, someone has submitted a question, and this is it. It says, the word says to decree a thing, and it shall be established. What exactly happens in the spirit when you decree something in faith? I think this is, this is a really good question. Now, I'm going to stop right there. And the reason why is because Patricia, at this point, she's read the question. You know, the Bible says to decree a thing, and it will be established for you. Um, which is Job chapter 22, verse 28, sorry, out of context. And what she's going to basically do here is she's going to build on this question with the assumption that whoever wrote this question has properly understood Job chapter 22, verse 28. And so they, so since they, so the question is, uh, the Bible teaches that uh, that if you decree a thing, it'll be established for you. So, what exactly happens in the spirit realm when you when you decree a thing, right? In in faith. Well, here's the problem: the assumption, the the ba- the the primary foundational premise behind the question itself is absolutely faulty and false. Okay, so I need you to open up your Bible if you haven't already to go to Job, the the book of Job. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at verse twenty two. But before we do that, um, we need to spend a little bit of time looking at Job verse uh, uh, chapter one, so that we properly understand the context for this book. Job is one of these books that if you don't understand what's going on in the story itself and how different characters are are doing particular things and what their what their what those characters represent in in the book of Job you're going to miss the whole point okay because there is in the book of Job no lie bad theology and it's bad theology on purpose okay to make a point regarding bad theology okay i'll explain it here in a minute so Job chapter 1, verse 1, let's take a look at the context for the story itself. Here we go. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Okay, you got it? Job is blameless, upright, and one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's the setup for this book. So here we have a repentant, forgiven believer in the one true God. Okay? And he's bearing fruit in keeping with repentance in his life, right? So <clears throat> now let me continue reading. There were there were born to him seven sons, three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many uh, servants, so that this man was the great greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go out and hold a feast in the house of each one of his, uh, on, on each one on his day, and they would send and invite the th- three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning, offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. I mean, even offering sacrifices sin offerings for his own children, right? Now, there was a day when the sons of God, 
This would be the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand only. Against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay. Does he see what's going on here? So now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another one and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay. So the, the book of Job is telling a very interesting story. Verse 1 makes it clear. Was Job somebody who was an evil sinner? No. He was a repentant and forgiven sinner, bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. He trusted and believed in the one true God. He's blameless before God because God has declared him to be right, uh, blameless, right? He's saved just like all the rest of us. So... That's the setup here. So he loses everything in a day. I mean, every, I mean, he even breaks out in boils and blisters. I mean, he's in pain. He's lost everything. And along come Job's three, quote, unquote, comforters. Okay. And his comforters are offering the most miserable of advice. In fact, Job chapter 22 is spoken in the in basically by one of Job's comforters and his name is Eliphaz the Temanite okay and Eliphaz believes that all of this evil has befallen Job because Job is an evil and a wicked man and he just can't bring himself to confess his sins and repent that's the advice that's coming here and by the way verse 28 which we're going to get to is spoken by Eliphaz. And Eliphaz does not correctly understand the situation at all. The advice he's giving, the theological advice he's giving, is absolutely bunk. He doesn't understand truly what's going on. Job is not being punished for his sins. Job is not being punished. He's being tested by God because Satan has asked to sift him. 
because he's a righteous man, right? So now with that in mind, we're going to read Job chapter 22, starting at verse 1, and we're going to continue on to to, uh, verse 28 so that you can see in context what's going on. So then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said to Job, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are right if you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for is it is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities, Job. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked uh, and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power and the land and you and favor and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see. And a flood of water covers you. Ah, so Eliphaz the Temanite believes that all of this wicked, evil suffering that has befallen Job is because he's hasn't taken care of the widow and has shown favor to the wealthy and he's crushed the fatherless and things like that. Does Eliphaz know what's really going on? Not at all. Not at all all. This comfort is no comfort, and Job would be right in rejecting this comfort and advice from Eliphaz. But Eliphaz continues, Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. But you say, what does God know? Can can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep the old way that wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, surely our adversaries are cut off. And what they and what they left, the fire has consumed. Verse 21. Agree with God, Job, and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. So here, Eliphaz believes that all of this has befallen Job because he was evil and wicked, and he refuses to agree with God regarding his wickedness. But that's not what chapter 1 said, is it? So here's Eliphaz continues, verse 22. So receive instruction from God's mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your uh, gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You decide on a matter and it will be established for you and the light will shine on your ways for when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Now you notice I read all the way to the end of the chapter. Okay. So, Here's the question that I need to ask. 
Ought we to take the advice and theological musings of Eliphaz the Temanite as sound biblical doctrine? Nope, we should not. Because Eliphaz is held up as a false teacher. Eliphaz is understood in the full context of the book of Job as somebody who thinks he gets it, but doesn't. And so when we get to verse 28, okay, you'll notice as I was reading it, I just kept going so you can hear it in context. You will make your prayer to him, okay? He's telling them to agree with God and be at peace. Agree with God that he's evil and wicked and has done wrong and all this kind of stuff, right? And then you'll be at peace. And then verse 28, then, okay, then you will decide on a matter and it will be established for you and the light will shine on your ways. Right. You see, the you will decide on a matter and it will be established for you. That, by the way, in the... Um, in the King James, let me switch translations real quick here because the, 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 this is quoted by the Word of Faith heretics from the King, Cha, King James. Uh, it says, Thou shalt also decree a thing and it shall be established unto thee. Okay, The reason why they use the King James is because out of context, it creates the impression that God is giving a command here. Decree a thing with your mouth. And it will be decided and, and it will be established for you. However, when we take a look at the Hebrew, the word that is used for the decree in the King James or the word decide in, uh, in the ESV is uh, the Hebrew word gazar. Okay? And gazar has as its kind of understanding here is to divide or cut, uh, to cut off. So the idea is this, is that when you make a decision, making a decision means that you're cutting yourself off off from other options, okay? That's really what's going on behind the word gazar, is the cutting off of other options. Now, it can also mean to, to decree, but I think the ESV and other translations get it right when they translate uh, gazar here as, and you will decide on a matter and it will be established for you, okay? But here's the idea, the you will decide on a matter and it will be established for you, cannot be properly understood without the fuller context that then which starts in verse 21 here of uh, this portion of Eliphaz's um, counsel to Job again agree with God and be at peace thereby good will come to you so you need to agree with with God that you're evil that you're wicked that all of this has befallen you as a punishment for your sins once you do that then you will decide a matter and it will be established for you right Okay, so when you understand this passage in context, then you understand that the Bible does not, does not teach that we as Christians decide what the future is by decreeing a thing with our words. This is the false theology of Eliphaz the Temanite that has been recorded for us in the book of Job. And it's interesting that heretics are misquoting a heretic, somebody who, who falsely understands God, in order to establish a doctrine that is not taught in Scripture. See, when you take a look at the context, you realize, oh, that's not what Job 22 is teaching at all. Exactly. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to back the audio up so that you can hear again Patricia King receiving this question so that she can answer it and assuming then that this person has rightly understood Job chapter 22, verse 28, but they haven't. 
they have a false understanding of what that passage says out of context, but then Patricia King is going to build on that foundation. But here's the deal. It's a faulty foundation. It's a false foundation. It's not what God's word says. And so she's going to add more verses out of context on top of this faulty and false foundation. Here we go. For Ask Patricia today, someone has submitted a question, and this is it. It says, the word says to decree a thing, and it shall be established. What exactly happens in the spirit when you decree something in faith? I think this is, this is a really good question. So uh, Patricia assumes the question, that the premise behind the question is correct, and now she's going to answer the question. The question is, what's happening in the spirit realm when we decree a thing? Um, I'm not familiar with any passages that describe what happens in the spirit realm when we decree a thing. Are you? The words that we speak are spirit and life or spirit and death. In fact, no passage, just an assertion. It says in James that that our whole course in life is directed by the words we speak. Okay, and she's she's mis-summarizing James's teaching regarding the tongue. Go back and look it up in context. So we have to watch this little deadly member called the tongue because if it's not sanctified, it'll bring forth death. Jesus said, the words that I speak are spirit and they are life. So I- and he's God incarnate. The words that I speak are spirit and life. He's speaking as the God-man. As he spoke them, the, the, the essence of that word or the substance, uh, what it represents, goes out into the spirit realm and starts to create. Okay, now, no passage says this. Okay, she's taken something that Jesus says, completely omitted the Christological facts that come into play, and now she's making up a teaching. And see, when you speak your words, they go out into the spirit realm and they create. No Bible passage says this. Brings life. The more word that you can speak, the more life will be given. You know, can you just imagine what it would be like if every single Christian decreed the blessings of the Word of God into into their realm of influence every single day? It would fill... It would do nothing because the Bible doesn't teach this at all. The atmosphere with the glory of God. When you decree in your home, your home will fill up with the glory. After I finish an hour of decrees in our home, I can feel the difference because that word goes out and it begins to create. In the- yeah, and you're feeling somehow Trump, what God's word says in context? I doubt that. The same way there can be destructive decrees. That's how Satanists and witches work on on, on, on that kind of principle is that they will speak what's called curses, but they'll speak it out of their mouth. They'll even drive by houses and curse them with fire or whatever. And when that happens, it releases the demons to go and bring that, that curse about because the word goes out into the spirit. Really? You got a biblical passage that says this. So the words we speak are very important. Now, a decree isn't just a word going out. Oh, okay. A decree is actually taking God's word and speaking it out in faith. It is like... Really, you got all of this from misquoting Eliphaz the Temanite's false doctrine and theology. Weird. A settled and established thing that we want to just peg into the realm of the spirit so that it's done. And in Esther... By the way, this is magic. This is literally the same premise behind the concepts of magic. Ma- speak magical words and it creates the reality. This is magic. 
This is not biblical teaching. 8-8, it says, when you, when you write a decree down and then speak it, deliver it in the name of the king, with the king's signet ring, which is the promise, then it can't be revoked. It's that powerful. So we have... Okay, that was a misquoting of Esther. Um, that was not talking about God, the king. ...been given the authority from Jesus to make these decrees into our realm of influence. And as we do, in the spirit realm, it'll start to create create and form the will of God. It'll also dispatch angels into that realm. The moment really, you got any passages that say that uh, when you decree a thing, it'll dispatch angels. The moment that you decree a thing, it will dispatch the angels to go and bring fulfillment to that word of God because they obey the voice. Now, did you hear that? Fulfill that word of God, the words you spoke. Of his word. And so God bless you. And I just encourage you to go and decree lots of the word of God and reap lots of blessings. Yeah, the Bible does not teach this. This is a false doctrine built on a passage that was spoken by Eliphaz the Temanite, who did not properly understand anything regarding God. He's one of Job's, quote, comforters which means he doesn't really truly understand what was happening to Job, nor does he understand what the solution is to Job's problem. As a result of it, um, misquoting Eliphaz the Temanite in order to establish a positive doctrine regarding Christianity, well, that's like trying to build a house on sand. Um, We all know what happens when somebody tries to do that. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back um, with our first real official Joyce Meyer update. Don't want to miss it. Be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. You have reached the voice mailbox for Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm, I'm trying to uh, you know, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. That I, I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. 
world is so complicated. You, you know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you can make one of your really fancy videos and tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name. I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and uh, one more thing. You might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. I, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. Hey everyone, this word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. Come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me, give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty, mighty adventure. That adventurous heart that you have, the Lord is going to really, really reach in and he's going to satisfy that heart in you. And it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day. So, Vincent, come to the Lord. Wait no longer. Vacillate between two opinions no longer. I want to invite you to register for the free Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally coming to the following cities the fall of 2012. These are one night and they're free, but you must register online at worldviewweekend.com. We're going to start out October 7th in Destin, Florida. Then we're on to Wichita, Kansas, Des Moines, Iowa, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rogers, Arkansas, Peoria, Illinois, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Rockford, Illinois. They're free, they're one night, and it's the Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. That's worldviewweekend.com. Please post this on your Facebook, put it out to your email address book. Help us get out the word about these free fall 2012 Biblical Worldview Weekend Rallies. Speakers will include myself, Brandon House, along with Justin Peters, Mike Gendron, Jimmy D. Young, and a few others. Don't miss out on the fall Worldview Weekend rallies coming to these cities. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. 
We're back. Uh, warning, if somebody tells you says, that the Bible says to decree a thing and it'll be established for you, they don't know what the Bible really teaches there. They're teaching you falsely. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, now it's time for our inaugural Joyce Meyer update, and here's the music that I have picked for Joyce Meyer. That's uh, Wolf Mother, Joker and Thief. Uh, that's the name of their song, Joker and Thief. All right, so to inaugurate our Joyce Meyer updates, I think it's important that we uh, do a little bit of background information on Joyce Meyer because this plays into whether or not anybody should be listening to her. And so I'm at the uh, Joyce Meyer website, JoyceMeyer.org, and they have a simple section called FAQ or About Us. And, and you can at, you know, they answer questions about Joyce Meyer. And so one of the questions that comes up is Joyce Meyer a, um, an ordained minister? Is Joyce Meyer an ordained minister? Here's what the Joyce Meyer website says. Joyce Meyer was ordained over 25 years ago. She has a worldwide congregation through the Enjoying Everyday Life television and radio programs, um, and Joyce Meyer speaks publicly or regularly at public conferences in the United States and around the world. She also preaches occasionally at St. Louis Dream Center Church and Inner City Outreach of Joyce Meyer Ministries. Well, here's a problem. So Joyce Meyer put her, puts herself forward as a pastrix. Okay. However, she's a pastrix of her radio and television program. But she claims that she's an ordained minister. Well, that's a problem because the Bible nowhere, and I mean nowhere, 
um, permits a woman to have authority over a man. None whatsoever. There's no such thing biblically as a female apostle. There's no such thing biblically as a female pastor. I call them pastrixes, and the Bible prohibits this flat out. In fact, the qualifications for a pastor is that he must be the husband of but one wife. Now, um, so here's the deal. Already there's a big problem. She is in flat-out rebellion against the biblical qualifications for a pastor, an ordained minister. That should raise a red flag immediately, which tells you something about her, and that's this. She does not, does not truly believe the Bible is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. She takes issue with the Bible and engages in obfuscation in order to um, basically blunt, shunt, and eliminate clear teachings of Scripture that don't agree with her idea, her ideas, her theology. She stands in judgment over God's word. Make no mistake about that. Now, when you look at the history of things that Joyce Meyer has said, I find this one to be probably the most amazing, in a bad way, and also the most telling and revealing, and this is a very important thing to note. She has never repented of this statement, and if you don't believe that this is part of the beating heart of her personal theology, her personal uh, brand of Christian, uh, Christianized religion... Um, then, you, well, you'd be mistaken. This, this is truly, truly at the beating heart of her theology. And we'll come into play, you know, behind the scenes from what we're going to hear in, from this uh, soundbite from her identity theft sermon that she preached uh, this year. But uh, here, listen, you've probably heard this before. Listen very carefully. I am not poor. I am not miserable. And I am not a sinner. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is what I were, and if I still was, then Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my sick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. And the religious world thinks that's heresy, and they want to hang you for it. But the Bible says that I'm righteous, and I can't be righteous and be a sinner at the same time. All right. So, um, Joyce Meyer, she says, I'm not poor, I'm not miserable. And I'm not a sinner. The Bible says I'm righteous, and I can't be righteous and a sinner at the same time. Now, this ought to tell you something, and it ought to alarm you. This tells you she is not properly trained in any kind of Christian theology whatsoever. She is a word of faith, prosperity, heretic. Okay, This is one of the, uh, the false doctrines that runs rampant through prosperity, word of faith, heretics. Okay, Now, I would just <clears throat> quote against her, um, you know, such things as like 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that's God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, let me give you another passage from Jesus himself, okay? From Jesus himself 
And uh, this is from Jesus' teaching um, us as far as how to pray. And this can be found in the Gospel of Matthew. I'll start at chapter 6, verse 5 for context. Jesus says, And when you pray, from the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and they, that they may be seen by others. But truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we, forgive, as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. Okay? Jesus instructs us how to pray, giving us a daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And yet, in this daily prayer, we are to pray for God to forgive us of our debts, our transgressions, our sins. So here, Joyce Meyer, as part and parcel of her theology, she denies that she's a sinner. Listen. I am not poor. I am not miserable. And I am not a sinner. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is what I were. And if I still was, then Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my sick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. And the religious world thinks that's heresy, and they want to hang you for it. But the Bible says that I'm righteous, and I can't be righteous and be a sinner at the same time. Okay, so I, I can't be righteous and a sinner at the same time. Yeah, um, yet the Apostle Paul, and my question for her would be, are you greater than the Apostle Paul? Do you know better than Jesus who instructed us to pray every single day? Forgive us our trespasses. Okay. Are you greater than the Apostle Paul, who is an eyewitness to the uh, bodily resurrection of Jesus, and who has uh, written the, the big bulk of the, uh, the New Testament? Because here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll start at this, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief, the foremost. But I receive mercy for this, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The Apostle Paul didn't say, I were the chief of sinner. He says, I am the chief of sinners. Present tense. Read Romans chapter 7. So here's what we know about Joyce Meyer. She is a word of faith heretic. She is a pastrix, contrary to the clear commands of the Word of God, that women are not to be ordained or hold uh, the preaching office in the church. Um, and you, you notice what she says, and the religious, the religious institution it calls that heresy, but, da, 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 but I didn't stop sinning until I, you know, right, right, right. She is firmly against the religious institution. This is a woman who is the lone ranger uh, of heresy, if you would. She is a woman standing against 
the false establishment of Christianity, and she herself has apparently figured it all out. Well, what do we know so far? She is in direct contradiction and violation of the clear teaching of the Word of God. And with that as our foundation, let's add on to this a very slick, very subtle, very narcissistic um, twisting of the gospel and its implications and a presentation that's apparently supposed to save us from the problem that we all face. Here's Joyce Meyer and part of her sermon entitled Identity Theft that was preached and broadcast earlier this year. Father, we thank you for the word tonight, all the beautiful people that have taken Friday night to come and wait on you and let you touch them. And I do pray, God, that you would touch them and not one person would leave here the way they came. Encourage, edify, deliver, heal, set free, and save those that are lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you heard That creates the impression that this is a Christian preacher. She's not. Woman testify a little bit ago that although she grew up in church and would not have missed church, that her and her family diligently went to church, that behind the scenes, behind closed doors at home, she was just an absolute mess. Uh huh. So, despite the fact she went to church, apparently the effects of her fallen sinful nature uh, was running its course, right? So, apparently, this is. So the problem that she's setting up here is, listen, if you're in Christ, you shouldn't be having problems like this. Huh. Part of it was because she really had lost her God-given identity. Really? So the reason why, see, because remember, I, I'm not poor, I'm not miserable, I'm not a sinner, and I didn't stop sinning until I realized that I'm not a sinner, Right. So that's what's beating behind this theology. She's just not saying it out loud, but that's the premise. If you're truly a Christian, if you're truly in Christ, well, then you have a new identity, and, well, you don't experience bad things behind closed doors at your house. That's that's just absolutely insane. It's not normal. You're a Christian. You shouldn't be having problems like that. You're not a sinner anymore. I believe that many times what we see going on in the world is something that's actually a manifestation of something that's going on in the spirit only we don't see it in the spirit notice the words i think no christian pastor leads off a statement regarding god or doctrine or theology with the words i think they always begin by saying it is written or the lord has spoken and said in his word but not i think Today, identity theft is a huge, huge thing. I saw a movie once about a girl whose identity was stolen. And her life just became an absolute nightmare. This person who'd stolen her identity racked up all these bills and they were trying to make her pay debts that she didn't know. She was being accused of things that she did not do. Very much like the enemy deals with people. He accuses us all the time. He tries to make us think that we constantly need to be paying for something, paying, 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 although the Bible tells us that Jesus has already paid. There's a little gospel nugget, okay? But don't think she's preaching the biblical gospel here because she's not. You need to know who you are. 
And you need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know where to get your identity. This identity theft thing has become such a problem that now people are buying insurance against identity theft. But the good news is, is that Jesus is our insurance against identity theft. Huh? I'm talking about spiritually speaking. So I really want you to open your heart and receive this word tonight because I... Yeah, no, I will not unless it's from the clear, solid, in-context exegesis of God's word. But already it's clear that you have no intention of doing that. ...that so many people just don't feel good about who they are. Okay, I'm going to back that up because you need to hear that statement again. So apparently there's a big problem out there. People just don't feel good about who they are. Huh. I'm talking about spiritually speaking. So I really want you to open your heart and receive this word tonight because I believe that so many people just don't feel good about who they are. So there it is again. I believe that so many people just don't feel good about who they are. No Christian preacher is ever called to say, well, I think, or the problem is, or I, I kind of sort of believe that the problem is this or whatever. All Christian pastors are called to preach and proclaim God's word, not make assertions about what they think or feel. They feel the pressure from the world. They feel peer pressure to be what they think everybody wants them to be. And sometimes we try to be so many people and we try to play so many different roles that we get confused about who we are. I believe we have an epidemic of insecurity in our society. Mm, I believe we have an epidemic of insecurity in our society. Well, that sounds terrible. Is that the, the problem that Scripture says? That the, that the world out there, basically people are an epidemic of insecurity. Is that our problem or is the problem that Scripture presents the, um, that humans born dead in trespasses and sins don't even realize just in how much trouble they are with God and are absolutely secure, rather than insecure, but secure in their sinfulness? Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all. That's everybody and everybody everywhere. You remember uh, the movie uh, Back to the Future Three, where uh, Marty McFly, uh, you know, goes to the what, what, the old West, and uh, the name that he picks for himself is Clint Eastwood. Well, he goes into that bar, and and you know, he, he has to face Biff's uh, ancestor, and uh, you know, and fight him, and and so they were trying to get him to uh, go outside, and they were calling him a coward, and the one guy said, "Everybody everywhere will say that Clint Eastwood is the biggest yellow belly in the West." Right? You familiar, remember that line? Well, here Paul says. Are we Jews any better off? Well, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek. That, that means all, everybody, everywhere, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, that's the dire situation that Scripture presents. But see, Joyce Meyer here is basically going to set up the, the, a big problem. There's an epidemic of, of insecurity out there, and, and the world is robbing people of their identity. No, it's not. That's not the problem. The problem out there is that the world is full of people who are dead in trespasses and sins and are sinners and have transgressed God's holy commands and laws and are in rebellion with him and according to Jesus are still under the wrath of God unless they believe in him in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. But we continue. And I think it causes so many problems in relationships because people are not functioning together on an opus, open, honest level. There's a lot of pretense and a lot of works of the flesh, people trying to be what they think that everybody else wants them to be. Mm, so a work of the flesh, that she's redefined it very carefully right there. A work of the flesh is not sin, transgressing God's holy law. But a work of the flesh now, in her way of thinking, is trying to be somebody, uh, somebody else other than who you are. Because the world is trying to get you to be somebody other than who you are. Subtle, dangerous, and absolutely false. And the truth is, is God is never going to help you be anybody but you. What kind of statement is that? Did you hear me? Yeah, I heard you, and it makes no biblical sense whatsoever what you just said. God is never going to help you be anybody other than you. And he doesn't want you to be a people pleaser, not that we don't want to please people. But there's a difference in a normal desire to please people and becoming a people pleaser in that you end up letting them manipulate you and control you because you're so intent on keeping them happy that in the process you're making yourself unhappy and very often making God unhappy. Ah, so you make, you make God unhappy when you try to please people by becoming somebody who you ain't. You've had your identity stolen from you, apparently. This is not a biblical teaching at all. You can't really say no to people when you need to say no if you don't know who you are in Christ. So many people go to church and they try to follow all the rules and regulations, but the truth is they just don't like who they are. Oh, yeah. See, that's the problem. They just don't like who they are. So here comes the obligatory Joyce Meyer swipe at solid Bible teaching churches. They feel guilty. They feel condemned. They live under shame and blame and a reproach that they picked up somewhere along the way in the world. So the, 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 the world is the one that made them you know, feel like oh, they're, they're guilty. And I can tell you when you go to church and you're handed 10 more rules to follow and three new doctrines, it's not going to deliver you from that mess. What you have to know is Christ and the power of his resurrection. And you have to know who you are in him. You have to learn. Now, that's part of her shtick. When you listen to uh, Joyce Meyer sermons and listen to hours of her program, which unfortunately I've just begun doing. This is all part of her shtick. She alone understands what's really going on. Those people in those established churches, they're, you know, those pastors are rubes. 
they don't understand really the power of God or any, but she does. They, they, they try to help people by giving them three new rules and two, uh, two more doctrines and stuff like that. What a bunch of morons. That's kind of how she treats them. But she alone has figured out the secret. She has got the she's got the straight talk that's going to put you on the inside track so you can overcome these problems. And you don't need to go to those those morons and those established churches where they, you know, give you doctrines and stuff like that. That's part of her stick. Identify with who you are in him. If any man be in Christ. Now, here comes a verse out of context. He is a new creation. Uh huh. A new creature altogether with a brand new nature deep on the inside of him. Now, this is true. All things pass away. All things become brand new. In Joshua chapter 5. Now we're going to the Old Testament. When Joshua is going to go in. So this, this, the technique is this. You rip verses out of context and you stick them next to each other as if they're commentaries on each other, but they're not talking about the same thing. Rip a verse here, rip a verse there, rip a verse there, and then you weave it into a tapestry, and she's in control of the narrative, not the biblical text. The people in and take the town of Jericho. First, God told them, today, the reproach of Egypt is rolled off of you. You cannot possess the land until reproach is rolled off of you. Now, this is her own unique interpretation of this passage, and watch how she then applies it. Reproach is shame, blame, and a feeling of being a general failure. Okay, so the so apparently God has taken away from the children of Israel the the feeling of failure that they that was foisted upon them by those evil Egyptians. See, that was the problem. See, the the the, the real enslaving apparently of the, by the the uh, people of Egypt against the people of Israel was that they made them, the children of Israel, feel like a bunch of miserable failures. But God, in his mercy, there in Joshua, removed that reproach so that, and rolled it off of them. So now they no longer need to feel like a failure. Talk about a complete narcissistic twisting of God's word. When you read it in context, that's not what this is about. Nor is this what Christ came to save you from. Christ didn't come to save you from a feeling of failure. In fact... It is absolutely imperative that you and I come to grips with the fact that we have utterly failed to keep God's law, that we are called to humble ourselves before God and confess our sins and confess that we have trespassed against God, trespassed against our neighbor, committed sins against them, and over and again call upon God for mercy and forgiveness humbly, repentantly, and contritely confessing that we have failed to keep his law. That's an important part. Remember, First John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, she does not admit that she's a sinner. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Is the truth in Joyce Meyer? Not at all. She is speaking lies, which means the origin of her doctrine is the devil, because the devil is the father of lies. He's a liar. Okay, She's not speaking the truth. She's lying. And she's doing it very craftily, very confidently, very audaciously, if you would, 
But all of these things that she's speaking are flat out lies. When you go through the world a few years, almost everybody has that reproach. But Jesus died. Yeah, you go through the world a few years and now you just feel like a failure. Roll that thing off of you. Okay, I'm going to back it up so you can hear it in context. She's going to say why Jesus died. Listen. And a feeling of being a general failure. When you go through the world a few years, almost everybody has that reproach. But Jesus died to roll that thing off of you so you could live like a new creature. We don't want to just sing songs about it. We want to live it. We want to enjoy it. We want it to be a reality in our lives. Can anybody say amen? I cannot say amen to what you're saying. What you're saying is absolutely not what the scripture teaches. Jesus came to roll back that feeling of failure and reproach that the world has put upon you. No, the problem is, is that you've transgressed God's holy law. Is there anybody here who needs to feel better about who you are? Amen. Anybody that's tired of feeling guilty and condemned and like you got to compare yourself with somebody else and compete with somebody else all the time? Sick and tired of feeling guilty and condemned. I am not poor. I am not miserable. And I am not a sinner. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is what I were. And if I still was, then Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my sick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. And the religious world thinks that's heresy, and they want to hang you for it. But the Bible says that I'm righteous, and I can't be righteous and be a sinner at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what's beaten behind this particular sermon. I can tell you that I used to have mega problems with that, and I am free from it. That's right. I had mega problems. Uh, feeling, a, feel, feeling like a failure. There's nothing the devil despises more than a person who knows who they are in Christ. He hates a person who is confident. The devil is afraid of a person who is confident. Oh, give me a break. And you can be confident in Christ Jesus. Yes, we can be confident in Christ Jesus. Confident of what, though? Confident that we're reconciled to God through Christ's shed blood on the cross. Confident that God is merciful towards us and that Christ has paid the wrath of God in our place, took it upon himself that he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Notice the emphasis that I'm giving here is on what Christ has done to forgive us because we have sinned. She's basically preaching a gospel where God has come to free us, set us free from feeling like failures. Yet, well, failure and that feeling of failure before God is a primary and integral part of the gospel message itself because we are called to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. That's not the gospel she preaches. She preaches a gospel that sets us free from feeling like failures and having our identity stolen by the world. Well, that's our first Joyce Meyer update. We will be having more in the future, but that's just kind of to grease the skid, so to speak, and introduce you to a false teacher whom we're going to have to pay closer attention to in episodes to come. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back.
Sissiopified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Now, like I said at the opening of the program, I chose this sermon specifically because it, well, is guilty of committing probably the most common error in um, when it comes to properly understanding the law and the gospel. And that's confusing love as like something super simple, as if that's like the really easy thing to do. I'll explain here in a minute. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Upper Room Community, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Joe McDonald presiding. The name of the sermon series is Unravel. The sermon that we're going to be listening to is entitled The Simple Command. (laughs) I mean, with a name like that, you can already tell there's going to be a problem. Okay? The command to love God and love neighbor is not simple. That is the entire summary of the law. And it's the very thing that condemns you. Anyway, rather than try to preload the theology here, maybe we should uh, review the sermon as it unfolds and untangle some things so that you get what's going on. But this, by the way, like I've said several times now, is the most common mistake made among Christians in not properly distinguishing the purpose of the law and the purpose of the gospel, and it oftentimes confusing the law with the gospel because you know they mistake love for like good news when it's given to us in a command. So without any further ado, let me kill the music here. Here is Unravel the Simple Command and Joe McDonald from Upper Room Community, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Here we go. So tonight we're starting a brand new series called Unravel and we're, we're looking to rediscover the uncomplicated 
mission of the church. And as great a summer as we have had and as great a year as we have had, the one thing that's most important to us and the most important to me in leading this community is how much are we as a community together and individually growing in our love for God and for others? How much are we growing in our love for God and in our love for others? If you're new to our community, our uh, mission... Immediately, I would ask the question, um, how are you supposed to measure such a thing? You know, we do have the problem of measurement here. ...statement is that we are community loving God and others in the rhythm of Jesus. That's what we aspire to, to look at the life of Jesus. What's the rhythm of Jesus? Is it a samba? Is it a waltz? Is it, you know, what, what's the rhythm of Jesus? What on earth are you talking about? Jesus, the way that he spoke, the way that he prayed, what he did, who he hung out with, how he treated people, and followed Jesus on his path to loving God and others. Everything we do, everything we plan revolves around that single simple idea. Will this help us grow in our love for God and in our love for others? Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. When we talk about love God and love others, He's making it sound like, oh, it's so simple. If it was so simple, then um, how come you and I don't do it? How come we have to be commanded to do it? You see, that's what love God and love others is. It's a command. That's the summary of the law. I believe it's a simple command, but I don't think sometimes it's an easy command. Pull this up a little bit. Does anybody know what a Rube Goldberg machine is? If you do, raise your hand. I'm raising my hand. I've watched enough episodes of Mythbusters to know what a Rube Goldberg machine is. Katie, can you tell us what a Rube Goldberg machine is? No, that's fine. You don't have to, you don't have to excuse yourself for knowing a Rube Goldberg. Other people knew, Katie. Go ahead. What's a Rube? Yep. A series of kind of complicated contraptions that leads up to kind of performing a simple task. And uh, Webster's Dictionary has a definition because I was on RubeGoldberg.com. It's a device that accomplishes by extremely complex and roundabout means what seemingly could be done very simply. It's named after Ruben Goldberg, who was a 20th century engineer turned cartoonist. And he would actually draw these kind of cartoon models of these incredibly complicated machines whose sole intent was to perform something Really simple. Anybody have the game Mousetrap growing up? Yeah, awesome game. That is a great example of a Rube Goldberg machine, something that was really complicated, but in the end it just captured the mouse, and you could have just put the thing on the mouse. Anybody here go to St. Olaf um, for, for school? Suze? Yep. Did you know that you all are the collegiate national champions of the Rube Goldberg Goldberg Machine kind of college championship 2009 and reigning champions of 2012. So that's something to be proud of. You could put that on a t-shirt or something. So congratulations. But these machines are ridiculously complicated machines to perform extremely simple tasks. 2,000 years ago, things had gotten extremely complicated. The nation of Israel had been chosen by God to be set apart. To worship God as their one and only God, to be a holy nation, to be a blessing on all nations as they follow God, and to point other nations of the world to the one true God. But things had gotten complicated, ridiculously complicated, actually. 
It was Rube Goldberg machine complicated for sure. A few thousand years before Jesus arrived on the scene, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It's a pretty straightforward list. It's going to put them up on the screen. Most of us know at least a few. I'm not going to go through them all, but there was kind of the ten. Pretty simple. Not a ton of words. Simple. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Real simple. Now, do them. However, over the years, the clear and concise Ten Commandments became the complex and complicated 613 commandments. Now, I want to point something out here, and that is is that the 613 commandments as um, as the list got counted, that's what's in the revealed written word of God. That's what's in the Torah. That's inspired by God, okay? It gets even more complicated after that when the Pharisees add their own sets of commands with the idea that if you keep their commands, you won't even get close to disobeying God's commands. So before you start knocking things here, um, keep in mind, Joe, that um, that 613 number, that's the, 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 the tally uh, you know, pull out your abacus and pull out the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, and uh, you're you're gonna find you'll be able to tally up six hundred and something commands. Right? That's revealed directly by God. I want to show you them real quick. That's all the six hundred and thirteen commandments, real quick. And as they scroll through, basically, what these six hundred and thirteen? Did you get them all? It was an attempt by Jewish priests and teachers to draw out all the laws and all the commandments of the first five books of the Bible. Now, the way he phrased that is rather misleading. The reason why it's misleading is, is that it's an attempt by the, uh, you know, the Jews and the, you know, to draw out. The commands are there. I mean, this was not, I mean, this was them tallying up what's revealed in the written word of God. So the way he said that, somewhat misleading. But the result was here, and here's my nice little prop here. The result was, as they kind of drew this all out, all they were doing was just wrapping around the core of what it meant to follow God with your heart and your soul and your strength and your might. They just started wrapping stuff all around that. Uh, keep in mind, they were counting up what was written and revealed in the Torah, which was inspired and in many places dictated directly by the Lord, God. So it just became this complicated, big ball of twine, if we kind of think of our, in our mind of that analogy. There was something in the middle that so much stuff got wrapped around that the nation of Israel lost track of what was inside. And some of my, some of my favorites in that list, list of 613, help others load their beast. That is one of the 613. Prepare your latrines outside of camps. That seems like common sense to me. It shouldn't necessarily be on the 613, but it was. Not to panic and retreat during battle. I mean, that seems hard. Not to eat sacrifices offered with improper intentions. Now, how am I supposed to know what the intentions of the preparer were um, when they had it, whether it was proper or not? But again, it was this wrapping of stuff and laying over of the basic, what God wanted in the heart of his nation to be about, of all this stuff. And it got more and more and more and more complicated. Obviously, he doesn't understand biblical revelation, nor does he really get the law. 
No one could follow all 613, actually, because some were for men, some were for women. Many of them were for the priests. But regardless, the fact that 613 were actually written down and developed shows our human propensity for complication. What? Oh, man. The intent might even have been good in the moment or at that time, but the result was a behavior-driven approach to faith. What do I need to do or not do in order to please God? What do I need to do or not need to do to get it right and to get my reward? Became a behavior-driven approach. So then when Jesus comes to earth, he recognizes the violation of his father's intent. He knew what had happened over time to his father's chosen people. For too many people, life had become about the law and not the life that God had intended to flow through a relationship with him. Okay, watch what he's doing here because there's a lot of assertions being made and he's not actually exegeting a biblical text. Listen to Jesus in Luke 11. In Luke 11, he says, Woe to you Pharisees. Pharisees were leaders of the Jewish people because you have given God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. You do what the law says, but there's no sense of justice or love in it. You're doing it for your own good, Jesus is saying, not for the good of others and not out of your love for God. And I love there's a moment, Jesus lists off all all these woes to the Pharisees and then one expert in the law, which is a little bit different role than the Pharisees, says this to Jesus. Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And if I'm the teacher of the law, I don't want to provoke Jesus, right? You don't want to ask Jesus that kind of question because Jesus is kind of on a roll. But Jesus replies, and you experts of the law, woe to you because you lead people, load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. And the load he was talking about was the load of the law. It's a little bit more than that because the Pharisees and experts in the law added to the revealed rules in the Torah and added their own set of laws. So it's a little bit more than that. You might want to actually do your homework before you come to the microphone and deliver your sermons, Joe. Make sure that you've got it historically accurate. What you're saying is not correct that they were putting on the people. In Mark's gospel, Jesus has another interaction, a different interaction with the teacher of the law. It's found in Mark 12, and it's actually the passage that we find the foundation for our mission statement of loving God and loving others. I'm going to read through this exchange. And as I do that, I'm just going to speak to what Jesus was trying to say starts off, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Of all the commandments, Jesus, what is the most important? And the teacher of the law asked Jesus the question, and for the teacher of the law, the life was all about the law. The teacher of the law knew the 613 well. The teacher of the law's responsibility was to teach the people, the 613, and to find some way to hold them accountable to the 613, or at least the ones they could be held accountable to. But before we pile it all onto the teachers of the law, right, we have to admit 
and recognize that the Christian church has done the same thing over the last 2,000 years since the time of Jesus, right? In our humanity, we pick up the big ball of twine, take it where the teachers of the law started it, and we add things. We wrap things around it. When I say we, I'm saying we as the church, big C church. There's only one right way to baptize. You got to dunk them. You got to sprinkle them. You got to immerse them. You can't baptize children or you can baptize children. You have to receive communion the right way. You can't receive our communion if you're not one of us. It's just juice and bread. No, it's the body and blood. These parts of the Bible are literal. These parts are allegorical. There's okay, I'm going to point something out here. Um, what he's talking about are not necessarily moot points when it comes to rightly understanding what God has revealed in his word. If you were to talk about man-made rules, you could say things like this. Oh, a real Christian would never chew tobacco, drink alcohol, or go to a dance hall. You, you, you know, think think Footloose. Think of the movie Footloose. That would be a great place to go. I mean, remember John Lithgow's character in Footloose? Good gravy. There's no gospel in, you know, and that was all law-driven, no gospel. There was no Jesus. It was just rules, 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 rules. You can't dance. We're not going to let you dance in our town because dancing's of the devil, you know, that kind of thing, right? That's where I would go. The point, the things he's bringing up, there's some legitimate, bona fide, real theological debate and discussion that needs to take place over many of the issues that he's brought up. The Lord's Supper, baptism, I mean, you know, infant baptism, these are real legitimate things that need to be discussed. Whether or not to take the Bible literally or allegorically, yeah, that, rightly dividing and understanding God's word is a, is, it's a, that's something that needs to be addressed. And it's, this is not something that's just, oh, a moot issue. Just do the simple thing. Love God, love neighbor. Come on, just stop focusing on all that. It's just love God and love neighbor. That's really kind of the point that he's about to make. Severin sacraments, right? No, there's two sacraments. You can drink alcohol. You can't drink alcohol. You can watch rated R movies. You can't watch rated R movies. Christians should have these views of politics and government. You have to believe X, Y, and Z before you can become a real Christian. All these things we wrap around and layer on. And Boy, that is a convoluted list there. Add on what the core message of Jesus really is. So what's the core message of Jesus, Joe? If you think love God and love neighbor is the core message of Jesus, you're wrong. The church has done, and I know I have done at times what the teachers of the law has done. Sometimes we reduce God's word in the Bible to a rule book and use it to judge and exclude people. Instead of allowing it to be the love story that's filled with sin and brokenness and ends with grace and redemption. We pick and choose the things that we'll still live by and then we pick and choose the things that we won't live by anymore because they don't apply to us even though they're in the same Bible that the things that we pick and choose that we should live by are. Have you been to seminary? Serious. This is like stuff that's covered in seminary. So we're comfortable. Back to the story. And as Jesus continues in the story, this is his way of doing this, right? It's his way of saying, let's take away the layers, let's unravel, let's get to the bottom of what this is all about. 
Jesus says the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The most important one, love God. And you need to know that this is not an original response from Jesus. Jesus is actually quoting scripture, Deuteronomy 6. That says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Listen, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your, what? Hearts. In this moment, when Jesus responds to the teacher of the law and says, this is the most important, he's reclaiming the heart of the commandments, reminding people that it's a matter of the heart and not a matter of behavior. Yes, it's a matter of the heart and not behavior, and that's the problem, okay? The reason why that is the problem is because out of the heart, Jesus said, is where sin comes from. Sin originates in our sinful hearts. So, yeah, that's for sure. It's a matter of the heart. That's absolutely true, but you're mis understanding what's going on in this passage. Let me explain it to you by exegeting the text. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Okay. The question on the table is, which commandment? That is law. It's not gospel. That's law. And I'm going to explain why this is important to keep this in mind. Jesus answered, okay, the most important is Shema Israel, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Echad, right? This is from Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh Elohim. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second, Jesus throws in a second, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Okay? That's the heart of the law. Okay? Now, let's continue. So the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Notice Jesus said, you've got it. You're in the kingdom. He said, no, no, you're not. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus say that? The answer is given in the book of Romans because the apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit explains how we as Christians are to properly understand the proper function and role of of the law. All of the law is summarized by the two commandments love God, love neighbor. Stop there for a second. How you doing at that? 
Are you doing it perfectly? Because Jesus later says, be ye perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. The law demands that you keep it perfectly. doesn't say love the Lord with some of your heart, some of your mind, part of your strength. It says all. So how are you doing? You see, because every moment of your life that ticks off that you're not doing that, you are in sin. And as James says, if you've broken one of the commandments, you're guilty of breaking them all. Now you should be saying, well, then who can be saved? Great question. Okay. Let me reread what I read earlier today. Romans chapter three, verse nine. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You, me, everybody, with the exception of Jesus, fit this description. That is what is true about us, me, and you. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What's the purpose of the law here? The purpose of the law is to shut you up, basically, and declare you to be wretched and guilty before God, so that you may be held accountable to him. You have not kept these commandments. You have not today loved God with all your heart, and you today have not loved your neighbor as yourself. You stand condemned and accountable now before God as a result of this law. For by works of the law, now listen to me real quick. I'm going to change a little bit of the wording to make the point. By works of the law, we could say by loving God and loving neighbor, no human being will be declared righteous or justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's why Jesus said to the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He didn't say he was in. He said, you're not far, right? Because the law's work must be done. The purpose of the law is to show you that you are a sinner. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight since through The law comes the knowledge of sin. That's its primary function, to show you you are in need of a Savior, to completely take away from you that false and idolatrous notion that you keep in your mind that says, I'm a good person. No, you're not. You are a damnable, wretched, putrid sinner. And God's law exposes that and brings that fact to light. That's its job. Love God and love neighbor is the very thing that condemns you because you don't do it. Verse 21. But now, 
the righteousness of God. By the way, this is a possessive genitive. The diakasune tu theu, the righteousness of God. It's not your righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It's God's righteousness, okay, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Remember, the great exchange is this. On the cross, Jesus is bearing your sin. Recently heard a great quote. Great quote. Remember, Jesus is on the cross and he cries out the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Recently heard a, a great Lutheran pastor who says, my Bible has the answer to this. And he says, written in the margin on my Bible, it says, the reason God turned his back on Christ is because my sins were laid on Jesus. So the reason why God turns his back on Christ is because your sins are on him. That's what, if, that's what Isaiah says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why had the Father forsaken the Son? Because your sin was on him. That's the reason why. Okay? But see, that's only one half of the equation when we look at the great exchange. When you are brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Christ's sinless righteousness, the righteousness of God, the diakasune to theu, is given to you. You are clothed in the righteousness of God, and this is given and accepted by faith. Right? That's what's going on here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from loving God and loving neighbor, right? Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified or declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Well, yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. 
So what then shall be gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, that would be justified by loving God and loving neighbor, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted or accredited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. So no, love God and love neighbor is not the core message of Christianity, nor is it the core message of Jesus. And this is a common error that occurs because people think that when Jesus is questioned by this you know, uh, expert in the law, that Jesus here is giving his core message. No, that's not his core message. All he's doing is answering the question as to what's the greatest commandment, law. The, the law demands that you love God. The law demands that you love your neighbor and that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. Are you doing it? Be honest. The answer is no. So the law can't save you. This is not the core message of Christianity, by the way. You want to know what the core message is? Jesus gives it himself. Luke 24, starting at verse 45, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah, Christ, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance... And the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The core message of Christianity is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day bodily for our justification. And the clarion imperatives of the gospel are repent and believe. The the commandment, love God, love neighbor, that is not the gospel. That's the law. And that's where Joe completely biffs it and falls short and shows that he does not know how to rightly handle God's word. As a result, he shows himself to be a false teacher, as one who would put us back under the bondage of the law. And even though he says, oh, it's the simple command to love God and love neighbor. Oh, we just have complicated all of it. Go ahead and try. You tell me how simple it is to, um, well, keep God's law perfectly. And let me remind you that even the Jews uh, who were Christians in the first century, after the time of Christ, the apostles, even they understood that this could not be done. Okay, Let me read to you uh, from Acts chapter 15 regarding the very, very first church council. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Circumcision was something the Jews did to show that they loved God, right? It was commanded, clearly. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and says, said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. By the way, the law of Moses is summarized in the two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus even said so. But even when you come to that knowledge, you're not in the kingdom of God. You're just not far from it. Right? So the apostles and elders gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That they should hear the what? The word of the gospel, the good news. The good news is not love God and love neighbor. The good news is that Christ died for your sins, right? And so they heard the word of the gospel and believe in God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts, listen, by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So even the apostles here in Acts 15 at this council that was called to clear up the confusion between law and gospel made it clear they even couldn't keep the law. The central core message of Christianity is the forgiveness of sins, won by Christ on the cross. The clarion call of the gospel is repent and believe. That's the core message. Unfortunately, Joe has got this way backwards. You see, laws are necessary to reinforce good and proper behavior and punish unacceptable behaviors. But here's the deal. Laws cannot transform the human heart. Only God transforms our hearts. Um, then you got to keep in mind that love God and love neighbor is a commandment. It's a law. Jesus says the best and most important is to love God with absolutely everything you have. Heart, soul, mind, strength, everything. Not some things, not most things, everything. Go for it. Let me know when you accomplish it. You won't accomplish it in this lifetime. Period. Doesn't matter how long you live. Full surrender. God wants all of you until you give all of yourself to God. That's not what this text says. I believe you'll continue to feel like something is missing. Just there's a little something missing there. This love requires all of us, not some, not parts, but all of us. Right. And you won't be able to do it. Even the Apostle Paul, read Romans 7. The good that I would want to do, I don't do. The, it's the bad I, things I don't want to do. That's the thing I keep on doing. Uh-huh. Who will re- who, oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Paul says in Romans 7. You know, Joe, you do not understand the purpose of this commandment. It's not to transform you. 
It's to take away all semblance in your mind that you are good and decent and righteous before God. You know, it's to demonstrate that you don't love him so that you can be forgiven. Shamedly pursuing love in the way that Jesus showed us to pursue love. First, focusing on God, because God is the source of all love. Then Jesus goes on. He says, the second is this. And if you're reading it really carefully, you have to say, wait a minute. How can he say second is this? He was asked, which is the most important? We're looking for one here, right? The teacher of the law was looking for one most important, but Jesus gives another. And in that moment, Jesus is saying, we got some more stuff that we have to unravel and get away from what is my message. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Again, Jesus is quoting scripture. Leviticus 19, verse 18, to draw out the second part of the most important commandment. Now, I was a pretty good grammar uh, student in seventh grade, and I know that grammatically what Jesus says is not correct, right? There is no commandment, singular, no commandment, singular, greater than these, which is plural. Katie, am I right? Oh, okay, you teach science. But please do not miss. Do not miss what Jesus is doing here. This is not an accident. This is not an accident. As usual, Jesus goes to an entirely different place when he's asked a question. Jesus is fusing the two together. Love for others should be and needs to be the natural byproduct of a life that is alive and full with the love of God. The extent to which we love God with all of ourselves will dictate our ability to love others in our lives. This is not new. And what Jesus is saying when he says this is this is not new. He's quoting the scriptures to let anybody who's listening know this is not new. This is what my father always intended this to be. There's no higher value in God's kingdom upper room than love. There is no higher value in God's kingdom. And you don't love as you ought. That's why you need to be forgiven and to repent. Then love. N.T. Wright said the most Jesus-like characteristic is not miracles, it's not healing, it's not teaching, it's loving. In Jesus' response to the teacher, we hear God's truth plainly and simply. It starts with love. Love is at the core. Love is the foundation. Again, laws get our behavior. Laws get after our behavior that tell us what we can and cannot do. Um, Again, you fail to realize this is a commandment. This is a law. Why is it you don't see this in the text? But Jesus is after our heart. God wants behavior to be an outpouring of the heart. It's the consistent message of Jesus when you read the Gospels. Love is at the center. And do not, do not, do not, do not be deceived by people who tell you otherwise. Do not be deceived by people who tell you otherwise. Now, is there more than to faith than love? There's more to our faith than love. I admit that. But if we do not get love right, if we don't get love right, we have no chance of getting anything else right. 
Love is the key to peace and freedom and contentment and satisfaction. There is nothing else in the world that will satisfy the longing of your heart, the ache in your soul, than the love of God. That's at the center. That's what we need to chase after. And what does love look like? Beautifully simple. Love looks like Jesus. It's in the way that he acted and spoke to others and treated others. It's the way that he drew close to his Father. We look at the life of Jesus to see love defined. And if you need words for what love is, I think we can look through the lens of 1 Corinthians 13. So I'm going to spend just the last part of my message looking at 1 Corinthians 13. And now how many times have we all heard 1 Corinthians 13, right? You could probably just say, how many weddings have I been to? And that's about the number of times you've heard 1 Corinthians 13. But 1 Corinthians 12, the last verse of 1 Corinthians 12, I think it's important to start there. Paul says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And what that comes at the end of is this, these words to uh, people uh, in the Corinthians church who are arguing about gifts and which gifts were better and which ones should we be wanting to have and which gifts aren't as good. And Paul says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. There are lots of gifts, Paul is saying, that you can use and lots of things that we can do for the kingdom. And you can wish you had different gifts or greater gifts or more important gifts, but there is a far better way. There is a more important, most excellent way, and that's the way of love. He goes on and says, and Paul starts to unravel a little bit more, right? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And I need to stop there right now because as many times as we've all heard that, right? How many times have we actually thought about what does a gong and a cymbal sound like? What is Paul trying to say here? So, I'd like to have a volunteer. We just happen to have... We happen to have a gong today. And I, you know, believe me, I do a lot of weddings. And eight out of ten weddings, we talk about this. So, And I've never thought about this until this week when I was reading. What does this really sound like? Anybody uh, accomplished symbolists in the, in the house tonight? Seriously, we might have some symbolists in the house. Has anybody ever played a symbol in your life before? All right, who wants to just bang a symbol? Come on, Judy, let's go. Come on up and play the symbol. I want to play the gong, so... Okay. So you don't want to... Yeah, you can kind of do that. And you have to kind of... Not straight, you have to kind of go... Bash, bash. Sweet. Awesome. I'm telling the pro how to play the symbols, and I've never played them. Um, and Stefan did tell me that I need to kind of prep the gong like this. So now, now just listen. No, Judy, Judy, get up here. Get up here. So just listen. We're going to do this for about, I don't know, Judy, we'll do it for about, take my lead. How about you just take my lead and stop when I stop. Ready? Go. Okay. I think that was, that was okay. Thank you. Do you get a little bit more what Paul was saying? Just in listening to that? And I didn't even hear that until just now. How would you describe that noise? How would you describe it? Loud? Annoying? Irritating? That's that's where I wanted to go with this. Good job. (laughs) Loud? Annoying? 
irritating, obnoxious. There's a more contemporary example. One of the things, the weird things my family and I like to do in the car um, is just make really annoying sounds. Like we'll say, on the count of three, make the most annoying sound you can, and there's four of us making really annoying sounds. And I had forgotten until just this last week, somebody reminded me that Jim Carrey's character in Dumb and Dumber actually does the same exact thing, if you remember that. Just a tidbit that I thought you'd like to know. But man, when the four of us are making the most annoying sounds we can, it gets really annoying. But without love, that stuff is just worthless. It's loud. It's obnoxious. If you speak in the tongues of angels and you don't have love, it's loud and irritating and obnoxious. Paul goes on. Goes on unraveling. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I can have these amazing gifts that give me more knowledge, more understanding of the world that anybody has ever had, right? I can be the world's greatest philanthropist and humanitarian, giving everything I own to the poor. I can deny myself and my body of material things, but without love, it is absolutely worthless. So if it's not about speaking in tongues or prophesying or knowledge or knowing everything or giving to the poor, denying yourself, if it's not about that, what's it about? It's about love. Without love, nothing else matters. Until we get this part right, we can't get anything else right. Let's read this next part together. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Now, obviously, one, it's one thing to believe this and the other thing to do it. In our humanity, we can come up with a thousand and one excuses as far as why we can't. Right? I'm not perfect. I can't do that. Ah, some people just aren't lovable, so it's hard to love them. Another one I hear is, I'm not judging. I'm just protecting God's truth. God doesn't need any protection. Yes, but um, people do. God doesn't need to be protected. But people need to be protected from people who are teaching falsely regarding God. You see, you, you've got the emphasis on the wrong syllable there. And unfortunately, you're twisting God's word and not teaching the core message of Christianity, which is Christ and him crucified for our sins. And you're confusing law and gospel. And then turning around and somehow saying, oh, it doesn't matter if you're teaching right doctrine. Because that's what that little swipe is all about, isn't it? And yet that's contrary to what Jesus himself said. God wants witnesses who love in his name, not judges who keep people away from him. Hmm. Now you're making pronouncements for God. Interesting. I don't recall a passage saying that. God wants witnesses who love in his name and not judges who keep people away from him. 
It is hard. We're not perfect. It is hard to love like this, but we have to use this as an excuse to stop trying and actually use it as fuel and the reason to draw ourselves closer to God so out of our love relationship with God, we can love others the way that God wants us to. Finally, Paul says in this famous verse, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, the greatest of these is, all the stuff is going to go away. All the good stuff of life, all the bad stuff of life, one day it will be no more. All this stuff, all the stuff that we wrap around, our core mission and privilege and honor to love others and to love God, all this is going to go away. See, we all live in the present, in the present world in, in, in anticipation of a future reality. In the end, God's kingdom will come. And when it does, the greatest of what will remain is love. So what's your ball of twine made up of? What's your ball of twine made up of? What's your ball of twine? Let's see, that's his prop for the sermon. What have you wrapped around the simple command to love God and love others? It's really that simple. Serious. What have you decided is more important than the simple command to love? The forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross for every time that I don't do that. I want to actually give us a minute of silence to actually think about that for ourselves. A moment in which individually and then together as a group, we can speak to God honestly about our shortcomings in this area and ask God for... They're more than shortcomings. They're full-blown sins that will send you to hell. For his mercy and his grace and forgiveness in these areas in our lives that we decide are more important than his simple command to love him and love others. So close your eyes. No. I'm going to keep them open. I, I got to work, you know. We're just going to take one minute to allow ourselves to become aware of the things that we as individuals have layered upon the simple command to love. So you want people to become aware of their sins because that's what happens when you become aware of when you don't love God and love neighbor with your whole heart and as yourself. God and to love others. And as you tell God about the things you've deemed more important than his simple command, just acknowledge that you need God's strength through his spirit to help you overcome these areas in your life. You need more than that. You need to be forgiven. I'm going to fast forward through the <clears throat> one minute of silence here. That doesn't make for good radio. Open your eyes and look at the screens. And together we're going to read a verse from Psalm 51 as a communal confession. And cry out to God for forgiveness. Let's okay, th there we go. Okay. You do understand the gospel a little bit. Nice. At least you're going to end with forgiveness because that's what the folks there are going to need as a result of their sin being brought to light because you want them to focus on the fact that they haven't loved God and loved neighbor. 
But man, oh man, is this convoluted. This See, he's mixing the, two, the categories of law and gospel in a very bad way. Let's pray together. Have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. And instead of me telling you that you're forgiven when you come to God with a humble and contrite heart and confess, I want you to tell each other. So take a minute and say to the person to your right and your left, and I really want everybody to hear this from somebody else. Don't be satisfied just saying this to somebody, but hear it as well. Say the simple phrase to your neighbors. In the name of Jesus, God forgives you. Look them in the eye and say... Okay, and I'm going to point something out here. <clears throat> as convoluted and as mixing of law and gospel as this sermon has been, there's more gospel going on here at the tail end of this sermon than you get probably in a year at a seeker-driven church. So, you know, I'm going to give him props for that. The problem is, is that he hasn't properly distinguished law and gospel. As a result of it, he hasn't really hooked the gospel in correctly to, you know, the shortcomings as a result of the law. And he's offered them as the solution to all of this now that they've, you know, they're doing their corporate uh, absolution thing. You know, you just got to try harder at uh, at the simple command to love God and love neighbor. And it's like, yeah. So it's an utter confusion of law and gospel. But I want to point out here, you're hearing gospel elements here, which is, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So, you know, it's this is really a convoluted, confused mess at this point, but at least we're getting some gospel at the tail end of it. It doesn't make up for what happened that went wrong in the sermon, but at least it's, you know, the gospel's present. Normally, we don't even get this much gospel from a seeker-driven church like period. They, in the name of Jesus, God forgives you. Thank you for doing that. I've taken some seminary classes and I've had some theology classes. One was called systematic theology and theology helps me to understand God. It increases my knowledge of God. There've been so many theology books that have written from the Christian perspective. This is the one I had this is one of the ones I had in seminary class. It's a great book, about 600 700 pages. Theology studied or defined as the study of God. I have to confess, I do not want to study God. And that might not be a good thing for a new lead pastor to say to his community. I don't want to study God. Then study his word. Because that's what good Christian theology is all about, rightly understanding the word of God. I want to be loved by God. 
I want to experience the depth and passion. Oh, no. Now we've, we're driving a wedge between systematic theology and God and basically er, erring on the side of experience. Oi! Of God's love for me in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. I want to love God back as best I can humanly love him as possible. And even then, all of your love and your righteousness and good works will be like filthy menstrual garments. Got it? And surrender my life to him. That is what will change me. That's what will transform me. That's what I will lead this community out of. My deepening love relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And now we're like undoing the gospel piece in there. Wow. When Paul was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Or when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? His answer was love. Paul reiterates it. There's a lot of other things that we might think it's about, but in the end, it is about love. Upper room, it's really that simple. It's about loving God and loving others. Let's pray. Done. So you see what I mean? Most common error. Most common error made by people in Christianity. Confusing of law and gospel and confusing the passage where Jesus says the greatest commandment is love God, love neighbor, as if that's the core of the Christian message. It's not. That's part of the core. That's the, that's the part that shows us the real core, which is the love and forgiveness of God, won by our crucified and risen Savior, who was our substitute on the cross, and on him was laid our sin. So, yeah, I was happy that he has some concept of of the forgiveness of sins and absolution and understands that, you know, somehow intuitively Psalm 51, it fits there after thinking on your sins. That's good. But, man, I mean, they're, oh, what a mess. Pray for the folks there at the upper room. Pray for Joe McDonald. Pray that God would open his eyes, that he would properly understand law and gospel so that he wouldn't be chasing his um, his love tale all the time and end up, you know, basically defeating people by making the law the solution rather than the gospel. All right. So we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding... Anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button, actually. I have maxed out on my friends. And then uh, follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. It's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.